the following message entitled Church Works But Not Without Love, Part 4 of the series Church Works, was given by Bob Mundorf on December 1, 2013 at Sovereign Grace Church of Indiana, Pennsylvania. To learn more about our church, please visit sgcindianapa.org. My name's Bob. I'm one of the pastors here. (laughs) Thank you. It's exciting to say that because for two years I've been saying I'm a pastoral intern here, so this is the first time I get to say that if you're, if you're new and wondered why everybody clapped. And, and thank you, it's, it is great to be one of the pastors. It was a great service last week. Thank you for the cards and the gifts and all the encouragement that you gave. I really, really appreciate that. Well, when I was 17 years old, I first learned that a car doesn't work without its gas tank. Hey, now that I'm a pastor, I get to do things like this. I'm going to represent the redneck contingent today with my sermon introduction, and I'm not going to be ashamed about it. When I I was a kid, we... I sound like an old guy when I say this, but we didn't have all these cellular telephones and email and Twitter and high-definition TVs, all, all this stuff you know that, that kids nowadays have. We didn't have all these three-dimensional video games. We, we had video games, but your guy in, in our video games was like a little square, pretty much. So we had to use our imagination. We had it hard. You kids today wouldn't survive five minutes back in 1984. (laughs) So we had to get creative where I came from, find some interesting ways to have fun. And one of the things that, that some buddies of mine and I used to do, and parents, I'm not recommending this for your teenagers. Unless your teen is a redneck teen, then they'll be all right. But we used to go to our local junkyard and uh, get our, our money together. You know, everybody pitch in 10 bucks and uh, ask the guy there, hey, do you have anything that runs? It doesn't need to be pretty. It doesn't need to run well. It just needs to run. And, and we would get these cars for like 50 or $75 that ran. And we would take them in the woods and just beat them. <laughs> That's how we had fun. This... This one particular beater that we got that I have really fond memories of was the 1978 Ford Fiesta. She, she ran well. And, oh, she was a tough car. We would take her over jumps. We had these, this, this one set of jumps that the, the local guys who rode dirt bikes used. They called them the whoop-de-doos. Two jumps like this with a, a mud puddle at the end of the second one. <laughs> and... I guess I'm a role model now that I'm a pastor. Maybe, maybe I shouldn't be saying this. But um, no. we, uh, we jumped that 1978 Ford Fiesta, and we must have got like three or four feet clearance and came nose down in that, in that mud puddle. And we thought for sure this thing was going to stop running. But to our surprise, it, it settled, and it just kept going. 
And it, it went and went for about 200 yards, and then it died. And we knew a little bit about cars, and so we looked at it, and we couldn't figure out what was wrong with it. Everything seemed fine. Until about a week later, I'm up there messing around for some reason, and I look in that mud puddle, and there's the gas tank sticking out. So the moral of the story is vehicles don't work without their gas tank. And and you're probably thinking, what does this have to do with church and our series on church works, redneck kids and cars and gas tanks? What does that have to do with it? Well, it's an analogy. And you can have the prettiest car, not this one was, you can have the best car, you can have everything right with your car, but if it doesn't have a gas tank... It doesn't get fuel, and it doesn't work. In the same way, the church can have all these things we've been talking about. It can have elders and deacons, can have a, a perfect church polity, all the right policies, great, beautiful building, lots of people. But if we don't have love, the church doesn't work. And so, that's the title of the message this morning, church works, but not without love. Let's pray. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would help us, as you say to pray in your word, that you would help us to understand the scope of Christ's love for us, the the breadth and depth and height and width of Jesus' love, of your love for us, that we might be able to love others with that same kind of love, Lord. Lord, I, I'm completely dependent upon you as I preach. I pray that you would help this message to be an encouragement to the church, a help to the church. And Lord, we can do nothing apart from you. So without your help, um, I know that there will be no fruit. But I pray for your help in all of our lives this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, most of us are familiar with John 3.16. And John 3.16 tells us that God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. So God's love initiated all this to begin with. The church, everything. It 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 was started because of God's initiating love. We sang a lot about that this morning. And if you think about it for a second, that isn't the kind of love that the world usually understands. We we sang this morning that while we were God's enemies, while we were sinners, He loved us. He initiated that love toward us. It wasn't like God looked down and got this warm, tingly feeling in His stomach whenever He looked at us and said, wow, now, now there... There's some quality people right there. That's some fine, upstanding people. I think I'm going to assemble them together in this little group and call it the church. That's not how it happened. That's not how it happened at all. As a matter of fact, it had nothing to do with our loveliness. That's, that's the fundamental thing to understand about God's love, understand about Christianity, is that it had nothing to do with us. As a matter of fact, Romans 5.8 t- 
tells us that God loved us in spite of our condition, and it wasn't that we were lovable. It says that God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the kind of love that we're going to talk about today. It's not a responsive love, not a, not a reciprocal love. It's not the kind of love that says, I, I, I want to I see what you can do for me and then I'm going to love you. And if we're honest, that's the kind of love that, that the world usually endorses. I, I want to see if you can please me in some way. If I get pleasure from being around you, then, then I'm going to love you. That's not the kind of love that God had for us. So, just to start out this morning, let's just take a few minutes and, and talk about what love is, biblically speaking. Because, you know, there, there are all these ideas we're talking about of love in the world, but even the Bible mentions different types, different kinds of love. So, what is love, biblically speaking? Now, the New Testament was, was translated into English from ancient Greek. And the ancient Greek language actually had a few different words for love that we translate in our versions, our translations of the Bible, love for all of them. But it's super important to distinguish uh, what these are, what kind of love these different words mean, because when we do that, we gain a more precise understanding of God's love for us and how we're to love one another. So, just briefly, there's a word called eros. This is a, a romantic love, a, a, a passionate, sensual love. This is probably the love that you see a lot if you watch TV. Obviously, this is not the kind of love that God calls the church to have for one another. Then there's another word for love in the New Testament, and it's, it's phileo. And if you, you might recognize the, same, the similar sound of the word Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. So phileo is in the ancient Greek, but it's just translated love. And this is, this is the kind of, of love of friendships, of best friends, and of, of fellowship with being, of being with one another. That's what phileo is. So if you have a friend or a, a family member that you're just really fond of, you, you click, you just hit it off really well, that's phileo. It's a fellowship kind of love. So where eros is a, a physical attraction... Phileo is a, a more of a mental affection. I just am really fond of you. Neither one of those are the kind of love that God has for us that we read about in, in Romans 5.8. And neither one are the kind of love that we are to have for one another. Now, they're not bad. And, and actually, I have to correct myself because it does say God has phileo love for us in particular conditions. But see, those loves are conditional and the love we're talking about today, it's called agape. It is unconditional love. That's the main difference. Agape is the highest kind of love. This is the love that we are called to have for one another. It's an impartial kind of love. Not conditional. It's, it's, a, it's a selfless kind of love. And it's a sacrificial kind of love. You see the difference? It's not like, what can you do for me? It's, it's unconditional. So we're going to look at that today. And all week as I was thinking about this kind of love, I had this song stuck in my head, this old Boston song called More Than a Feeling. 
Not because the lyrics describe agape, but because the title describes agape. Agape love is more than a feeling. It's so much more than a feeling. It's actually something that, that we have to choose to do. Because nothing that the recipient does is going to merit it. As a matter of fact, it's a commandment. Jesus said in John 13, 34 and 35, speaking of this kind of love, he said, a new commandment I give to you that you love, this is agape, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So, see, this this is far from the, 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 Mom, how do I know I'm in love? Or the falling in love kind of love. This is not even close to that. This is a commandment. It's volitional. It's something we've got to choose by our will to do. And every believer is commanded by Jesus to have this kind of love for every other believer all the time. So, right now, you're probably thinking of somebody that maybe is hard to love, hard to like, hard to, that you don't really have the phileo kind of love for. And uh, you're probably thinking, well, how could I love him? Or how could I love her? And keep that thought in your mind. Don't tell someone, I'm thinking of this person right now, okay? But remember, if, if that's really hard to understand, how could I love this person? You're thinking through the lens of phileo. We've got to think through the lens of agape love, unconditional love. And so, if we're going to love others the way that Christ loves us, we're going to love them through the good, the bad, and the ugly, all the time. This is the kind of love that a husband is called to love his wife with. This is the kind of love that we're called to love one another with. And I realize this kind of love doesn't come naturally. It's just not natural to love someone like this. But here's the good news. If you are in Christ, the Bible says you are a new creation. You are a supernatural person because the Holy Spirit's come in to you to live. And so where eros is this physical attraction, phileo is this mental affection, agape is a spiritual kind of love. And we can do it. It's not natural. It's supernatural. But we are and dwelt with God's Spirit, and God would never command us to do something that He won't enable us to do by His Spirit. So we can do this. We can definitely do this for one another. And we read John 13, 34 and 5, and in that verse it says, in verse 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples. So this, this kind of love is it's way more than a feeling because it's something you can see. It's, it, it has feet on it. It's something that actually works. It's what makes the church work. You can see it running. You can see it working. And if all people identify us as followers of Jesus because of this kind of love, you've got to know what it looks like. Back in, in my 
uh, days when I was doing law enforcement. I was a probation officer for a while. When we were looking for somebody um, that maybe ran away or just looking for somebody for whatever reason, the dispatcher would come on the radio and, and give a BOLO, B-O-L-O. They still do that, John? It's, it's be on the lookout for, BOLO. And they would give a BOLO and say, so we've got a BOLO for this guy, and, and then they would give a distinguishing characteristic. Here's what he looks like. And if he had any kind of distinguishing marks or characteristics that set him apart from anyone else, they would tell us so that we knew what to look for. And, and, and one time, uh, we were out in rural Indiana County, northern Indiana County, and uh, it's just a different world up there. But being a redneck, I like it. Um, and, uh, and they gave a bolo for this guy, and this guy named Jeff. And, um, and I was really close to where they said that he was, he was at. And so um, go in there, and I get out. And this yard hadn't been mowed for a year. The grass was like 16 inches high. The house was dilapidated. And there were all these rusty cars. It was like a junkyard. We could have had some good deals there when I was a teenager if I knew about this place. But anyways, so this guy, Jeff, he's supposed to be somewhere there. And uh, I get out and I'm walking around and I'm looking. And I hear something behind this old rusty truck cab. And it was not a normal noise. I knew someone was back there. So I, I ordered the person to stand up. And now I knew, I knew something about Jeff that set him apart from everyone else that would make him be really easy to recognize. And as soon as this guy stood up, I knew it was him. The swastika tattoo on his forehead gave him away pretty quickly. Jeff, Jeff, and he was a great guy, a really nice guy. I, I really like this guy, so nothing against Jeff. I don't endorse swastika ta- ta- tattoos either, though. But that made him stand out. It, it marked his identity. And so Jeff, with his homemade forehead tat and his long, tangled-up red hair, he, he wouldn't have blended in very well anywhere. Maybe at Walmart, but... Um, <laughs> Most places, he, if he was at a country club luncheon, he would not have blended in. He stuck out like a sore thumb. No offense, Ed. So he had this tattoo in the middle of his forehead, and that marked him. And we, as followers of Jesus, we should stand out more than Jeff at a country club benefit. We should stand out to the world. They should be able to pick us out in a second because of this kind of love for one another. Well, here's what it looks like. I was reminded of a beautiful display of this kind of love not long ago when Jane and I and our family were invited over to the Moors uh, for lunch, and Susan was recounting how blessed they were when many of you in the church came, and and I asked them, they said it was fine to share this, Jeremy was fine with it, but when, when Jeremy went missing in the woods when he was younger... Uh, many of you came. And Susan, I asked her to write up some thoughts, and this is what she wrote. She said, The church members started to show up a little bit at a time, then groups at a time, care groups canceling so they could come and help look for Jeremy. Our driveway was lined on both sides, as, as was the road in front of our house. 
the policeman noticed that something was very different with this case and stated he'd never seen so many people come out in support. The next day, one of the firemen told a friend of ours that they had never seen anything like it and how wonderful it was to experience. Dan, our brother-in-law, came out of the woods above our house from from hunting for Jeremy, asking God why was this happening, knowing that God could have found him immediately. And when he looked out over the valley and saw the multitude of cars and people, he dropped to the ground and said, this was why. The whole church is here. People from the church took up needed positions. One took over the little ones, wanting to know where the bathroom was and the diaper bags. One went for the computer and made copies of Jeremy's picture for each group to take with them and hand out. One brought drinks and pizza for those hunting when they came back for a break. Some on foot were taking each conceivable route. Some went by car, stopping at anyone outside, asking them to keep a lookout. The church was alive and doing what God intended us to do for each other, filling needs. And it, she says, it still brings back tears of joy. What an experience of God at work. That's love. And, and people say things about churches like, well, that's a singing church, or, or that's a doctrinal teaching church, or, or this is a, that's a missions outreach church. But, but when that happened, you know what people were saying about, about you guys, about us? They were saying, that's a, a loving church. That's how we want to be known. We want to be known as a loving church. Now, 1 Corinthians 16.14 tells us, let all that you do, all that you do, be done in love. And as wonderful as that display of love was, that kind of thing doesn't happen every day. We, we want to do that when emergencies or crises hit, but it doesn't happen every day. And if we're going to let all that we do be done in love, we've got to figure out how to love every day in, in, in just plain old everyday life. And sometimes that's actually harder to do because there's, there's something great about coming together in an emergency, but... It's, it's just harder to do it every day in everyday life. So, how do we practice love as a way of everyday life? I'd like to just end by giving us four, four ways, four simple ways to practice love every day. And the better we can do these, the better our church will work. So, four everyday ways to practice love. This kind of agape love. The first one, lay down your life. Lay down your life. 1 John 3.16. Now, we talked about John 3.16, but 1 John 3.16 gives us a great picture of what this looks like. The best I know. It says this. By this we know love. So he's going to tell us, okay, here's how you know it. Here's how you know what love looks like. That he, Jesus, laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers this is love jesus is our template he's our example of what this kind of agape love looks like and this isn't only talking about when i first read this i thought this is talking about the cross which is a great example of laying down someone's life for us but 
after I looked at this verse a little closer, I thought a couple of things. One, well, we can't all die for one another's sins. So when he says, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, he's not telling us to, to die on a cross for each other's sins. He's telling us to lay down our lives in a different way. And Jesus didn't only lay down his life by dying on the cross. He actually laid down his whole life from the time he was born to the time that he died on the cross. He lived his whole life for us, and he laid down his whole life for us. And like it says about him, again as our example, in the book of Philippians, it says, do nothing for selfish ambition. Nothing. Think about that. Nothing. But in everything, consider others as more important than yourself. Jesus did that. That's how he spent his life. He never did anything for selfish ambition. He lived his whole life for one purpose, and that was to love us so that we could be forgiven. That's what it means to lay down our lives. Laying down your life, I don't want to keep using Greek words and everything, um, but the Greek word for life is psuche, and it means our soul, which in our soul is contained our will, our emotions, and our desires. And he's telling us to lay those things down. That's what Jesus did. He laid down his soul when he lived for those years on the earth. He laid down his will, his, his desires, his feelings, and that's what we're called to do. We lay down our will. Love means laying down our will. Think about that. Love means laying down your desires for, for your your family, your children, your spouse. Laying down your will for others in the church. Laying down your, your time. This is a big one. How do you lay down your life? You lay down your time. My, my mom said one time, I uh, hope I get this right, she said, how do, you, how do you spell love? T-I-M-E. I thought that was helpful. We're all so busy, and Mark talked about how busy we are, especially in this season, and we're to love God and love others. We've got to make that our priority, laying down our time for God and for others. Don't let busyness get in the way. We're to lay down our life for one another. And laying down your life is really inconvenient. That's part of it, laying down our conveniences. I mean, think of this. Whenever you get home from work, guys and you're tired, you worked a long day, not to mention that your wife's tired, and she did a lot of stuff that day too, but you know the kids need training, they need time spent with them, your wife needs cared for. Um, maybe, you're, maybe, guys, your wife hasn't been feeling well. This is huge. As a matter of fact, I, I want to just take a second to exhort husbands because, listen, God specifically exhorts husbands to have this kind of love for their wives. He says, as Christ, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. Now, we're all to have this for one another, but God singles out husbands, and here, here, you're to be the example of this kind of love for your family and for your church. So husbands, husbands, you know, you might not feel like taking care of your wife all the time and loving her and laying down your conveniences for her, but that's what we're called to do. Remember, this kind of love doesn't, it's more than a feeling. It's, it's by the exertion of your will and by dependence upon God's Spirit. 
And that's what we're to do. That's what we're all to do. Wives, you're to do that as well. Parents for your children. Children for your brothers and sisters. And us here in the church for our spiritual brothers and sisters. This is what we need to do because, like he says in 1 John 3.16, by this we know love. That's what love is. It's being, it's being more devoted to one another than to your friends, than to your hobbies, than to your uh, sports, than to whatever. I mean, it's, we're to be devoted to one another. That's a great way to define this kind of love. Devotion is when you put something before everything else. We need to be devoted to God and devoted to one another. And if we're not doing that, we're not loving it. Husbands, if you're not doing that, you're not loving your wife like Christ loved the church. This is, this is laying down ourselves. And if we're honest, the biggest obstacle of, of doing this kind of love, laying down our lives, is ourself. That is the biggest obstacle. Because selfishness is really the opposite of love. I had a friend that said, the opposite of love isn't hate, it's self. And selfishness doesn't jive with this kind of agape love. So we lay down our lives for one another. We bear one another's burden. We, we, we just give our lives for one another. That's laying down our life. Second thing uh, that we can do, second just practical everyday way to love one another is overlook offenses. Overlook offenses. Now, the whole Bible is peppered throughout with commands that have to do with us overlooking offenses. I mean, you'd think God knew that we were going to sin against each other. And if you're, if you're new coming to this church and you think this is going to be a great church, well, I hope it is, but I want to warn you, we are humans and we sin against one another at times. And that's why God saw fit to put so many commands about overlooking offenses and forgiving one another in His Word. The love chapter, what's known as the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that, that we're, love bears with one another. We've got to bear with one another. It's, it tells us that we shouldn't be resentful or irritable toward one another whenever somebody maybe does something to offend you. And this isn't easy. I... I know this is, none of these are easy. When we're sinned against, the natural reaction, I think, is to, to repay evil for evil. When there's a conflict and you feel like you're sinned against, we, we want to we give back at the person a lot of times. We want to take vengeance, but that's not the loving response. And, and I had another song stuck in my head other than the Boston song this week, and that, that was the song called Love Hurts. And I don't remember what the lyrics say, but the title is true for this kind of love. This, this kind of love when you're doing this, when you're overlooking offenses, when you're absorbing the sins of other people and not retaliating, that hurts sometimes. This kind of love can hurt. And again, Jesus is our example for how to do this. How do we do this? How do we overlook offenses when we're sinned against? 1 Peter 2, 23 tells us, 
says, when he, when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. This is how, this is how to overlook an offense. This is how we overlook offenses, by realizing that there really is no such thing as an overlooked offense. Because when Jesus was continuing to entrust himself to him who judges, judge, judges justly, while these people were sinning against him, while they were ripping his beard out and spitting on him and punching him and mocking him and crucifying him, he wasn't reviling in return. He was remembering that there is, there is a Father in Heaven who judges every single thing that happens to you justly. And an overlooked offense isn't really an overlooked offense because God judges every sin. And He either judges it on the cross where it's forgiven or in hell where somebody who's unforgiven will have to pay for it for all eternity. Every sin's already taken care of. When we don't overlook an offense, we're stepping out of our role. And we're becoming a judge. And we're sentencing people to penalties. If we're overly critical toward people, that's what we're doing. We need to remember. We need to put it in God's hands because that's His job. That's what He does. And that's a part of loving one another. Overlooking an offense. Paul tells us in Romans 12.19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Every offense, every offense will be judged by the Lord. And we need to entrust those offenses to Him and overlook them, absorb them, forgive them. When we do that, when we do that, the church will work so much better. The, the, uh, third, the third everyday way to practice this kind of agape love that we can just do every day, right now, as soon as we leave here, is verbalize love. Verbalize love. Now, this is huge because if you think about it, one of the most practical things that we do every day is we, we speak, we communicate. And the Bible also says so much about our words. And verbalizing, by the way, I just learned this the other day, that I always thought verbalizing was just speaking, like orally. But verbalizing is communicating with words, whether written or orally. So this applies to Facebook and Twitter and the Internet when you communicate over email. This, this is just any time we use words to communicate. We have the opportunity to love one another. Or we have the opportunity to use our words as a, a weapon of destroying love. And so, this is, this is super practical. Sometimes, in the same way that, that love is, is, is not going by feelings, like if you don't feel like doing something, we mentioned maybe it's inconvenient, you don't feel like doing it, You've got to do it. That's love. In the same way, the reverse is true. Sometimes we feel like speaking evil of someone or gossiping. 
someone, airing out their dirty laundry. We feel like talking about someone in a way that's not good for building up. You know the feeling? Like you, you just have something you want to say. And you're only going to say it to this one person, but you just got to say it. Well, that's not loving. James tells us, James is great with this if you want to know more about loving with your words. He tells us in chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, do not, and this is to the church, this is how the church works, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? See, these, these two, the O and the V, they kind of go together. The one we just talked about, overlooking offenses, and this one. Because James is tying this in with our words. And he's saying, when we speak evil against one another, you know what we're doing? We're putting ourselves again in God's place. God is the judge. He's the one that they have to give an account for. Even other Christians, if they say something bad to you, about you, and you hear about it, they have to give an account to God for that at the judgment seat of Christ. And so, we're to put that in His hands in the same way as we do when we overlook an offense. And for that very reason, we should never speak evil against one another. And so, when we verbalize love, we do things like Colossians 4, 6 tells us to do. It says, let your speech always be gracious. Or maybe one you're more familiar with, Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. This is how we love. This is how we verbalize love. If you do Ephesians 4.29 all the time, you're never going to sin with your mouth. And James tells us that If we can control our mouth and our speech, we're going to do pretty well to be able to control our whole body. So this is somewhere that we need to focus. This is an everyday thing that we can do to love one another. We can verbalize love for one another. Our tongue can either be an instrument of love or an instrument that destroys love. We want it to be an instrument of love. Last last point. Last point for how we can love every day. E, extinguish evil thoughts. Extinguish evil thoughts. This is huge. Listen, the Bible tells us that we are, the church is, each one of us are, in a spiritual war right now. Satan, demons, spiritual enemies are out there. And if there's one thing that Satan doesn't want us to do toward one another. It's probably the command that we're most told to do toward one another. And that's to love one another. This is huge, guys. This, this is huge, love one another. I, I just got to emphasize that. I think more than anything else, as a matter of fact, side note, Jesus said, if you love God and love one another, you're fulfilling all the commands, the whole law. You, you don't, that's all you got to worry about. This is Don't worry about anything else. Just worry about doing this and you'll be fine. So Satan doesn't want us to do this. This is is our most righteous weapon for righteousness. And he's out there trying to stop it. 
And so one of the ways that He wages war on us is by implanting evil thoughts and speculations in our minds about other believers. You've experienced it, haven't you? I mean, think about it. Satan gets in your head. He makes you think you've got this person all figured out and they've got all these evil intentions. And, and, you know, and maybe it's true. Maybe they're saying bad things about you. So resort, resort back to, oh, overlook the offense. But maybe not. It's one of the ways that he likes to get in our head, get in our thought life, and, and, and interrupt, drive a wedge between us and start to crack this love and shatter it in the church. He doesn't want the church to work. And so this is one of his main weapons. And when that happens, we need to do that. We need to extinguish, extinguish evil thoughts. They'll set fire to the church. They'll set fire to your relationships. And you've got to extinguish them right away. I heard somebody say this word, assumicide. I don't think it's a real word, but how do you, how do you commit relational suicide with one another? You assume something about them. That's, that's it. We don't want to assume. We don't want to speculate about one another. And I want you to know that when that happens, when, when you realize you're doing that, be aware that you are being attacked by Satan. And, and, and cut it off right there. That's what we've got to do. Listen to what the Apostle Paul tells us to do when this happens. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5. He says, for the weapons of our warfare, he's talking about this war, are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. That's, those are the ones that Satan raises and puts in our mind. And take every thought captive to obey Christ. Listen, we can do this because it's not fought by our flesh. If it was fought by our flesh, we couldn't do it. You might think, I can't stop those thoughts. They just keep coming. But this tells us <clears throat> that we have divine power. Once again, once again, we're referred back to this spiritual power that we have as Christians, because we believed in Jesus Christ as our Savior. Now, we don't, it's not like that automatically happens. Just the fact that we identify whenever I'm saying, hey, this isn't always easy, shows us that we, we can operate in the flesh. But we need to pray when that happens. God, help me. And fight the fight of faith. And tell yourself, no matter how you feel, you might feel like you can't stop this thought, that this is true. What God says here is true. Not how we feel. That's not always the truth. This is true. And so we can destroy these evil speculations and extinguish them the moment they start. And if we do that, if we do that the second Satan begins to put these thoughts in our minds, we're going to love one another better. We're, it's going to do so much to preserve that love that we have for one another. And the church is going to work a whole lot better. If we can do these things, these, 
these four things laying down our life, overlooking offenses, verbalizing love, extinguishing evil thoughts. If we can all do those, just imagine if we, every one of us in this room did these things all the time. That's when the church is firing on all cylinders right there. That's when the church is going to work. When we're not doing these things, it's, it's messing it up and the engine's missing and, and the church is a mess. And, you know, if, if all of us aren't doing these things, but some of us are doing these things, then things get out of balance. And those who are doing these things have a heavier load to bear. And it's like in some churches, in some churches people think the pastors and the care group leaders are, are to just carry the whole load of love in the church. But I want to tell you, we, the pastors cannot love the church with the amount of love of everyone that's in this room. 400 people or whatever. The pastors can't love the church with the love of 400 people. Only 400 people can love one another with the love of 400 people. And so we've got to all, all do this. We need to fulfill this command. And here's the thing. I'll just end with this. Just to remind us, church buildings, church polities, policies, great worship team, good carpet, you know, whatever. <laughs> it, it's meaningless without love. The church has to have love to work. Let's ask God. Let's ask God to give us that love now. Let's have the band come up as we pray. Father, we, um, we want to have the kind of love that You have for us. Lord, I'm remembering right now, Romans 8 tells us that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing. Nothing. It, it lasts forever. It never ends. Help us, first of all, to understand that kind of love more. That kind of love where nothing can separate us from it. The lover from the loved one. Lord, we want to understand that more. But we also ask You to help us to have that kind of love for one another. I pray for husbands and wives that they would have that kind of love for one another. I pray for Christian brothers and sisters in this church, all of us, that we would have that kind of love, that sacrificial, unconditional, selfless love for one another, Lord. Lord, I, I pray as You tell us to pray in 1 Thessalonians that our love would increase and abound more and more for one another. Because we know, Lord, that that's what's going to make our church work more than anything else that we talk about. So help us, Lord. We need You, and we trust You, and we depend fully on You for this. In Jesus' name, Amen.